Yes, indeed, it still sucks. Here we are back again. Not on a Friday, it's a Saturday, but we're still here. I'm JB. I'm Mike. And we have a third person. We have production manager, Justin. 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 Yeah. <laughs> you got it. Production manager, Justin Jantis, is here joining us tonight. He's really mainly here to weigh in for the third album of the night and on. So for the first half, he's kind of just here for the White Claw and the Bourbon, which you can see conveniently placed right in front of him. We knew that no matter how many times we wore like shirts with no sleeves or tank tops or anything, we just weren't providing enough ample eye candy. And so we really wanted to bring Justin on so that way the ladies would stick around on the YouTube stream. Yeah, Justin, you did not get the memo about uh, about the tank top. Is <laughs> oh. <laughs> Mike wearing a tank top? I can't see. Mike is wearing a tank top, yeah. I can roll my sleeve up. There you go. Thank you so much. <laughs> We're sorry about that, flow audience. Now you can see Justin. Fucking get the uniform right, Justin. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, rats! I have some sweet tanks too. Next time, next time. But yeah, we're happy to have here to have Justin here mm-hmm. with us again. He is another returning guest. Probably only our second returning guest, I think, so far, actually. And yeah, we're gonna the, have to start retreading some of these people, though. Both of them are named Justin. <laughs> actually, both of the returning guests. So far, have been named Justin. Coincidence? I think not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think not either. I was about to ask you, Mike, if you uh, checked out any new music this week, because uh, I think you did. I did. I was bumping the new Vince Staples whenever we started the podcast, and I didn't get a chance to listen to it yesterday, but I am um, I am a pretty big Vince Staples fan to begin with, but um, but the new one was it was really really solid. I'm I'm definitely going to dig into the rest of it. I'll tell you that much. Although I have been on a heavy fish diet recently, so getting ready for for the summer tour is that right? I mean, honestly, um, I think what it is is when I'm down here in Texas uh, because of the mosquito population, I tend to do all my walking on a treadmill. And fuck my life, dude. Like, you cannot walk on a treadmill to some boring-ass pedestrian music. It's really difficult. I, it's true. And it's funny because when, when I'm in Des Moines, like, I almost always do my cold listens for, like, future weeks and everything when I'm walking around downtown. And I love doing that, even if it's a shitty record. But fuck you on a treadmill with a dog shit record. That is brutal, dude. I totally agree. Like you really got to have something engaging because a treadmill is just bullshit. Let's be honest. There's nothing enjoyable about walking or running on a treadmill, at least for me. It's It's just a grind. No, you're 100% right. It's fucking terrible. There's nothing worse. And so um, the only way that I can make that hour on a treadmill pass somewhat faster is by listening to old fish shows. So I'm going through the new year's run right now. Well, that's exciting. Um, and a bonus for that is that you just get to brush up and get super amped because we are going to see some fish shows this summer. I know. God damn, dude. We're only a couple weeks away. Super, super, super excited about summer tour. Oh, yes. Are you guys going to podcast um, from the trailer? We just might. We're going to have to figure that out. We've talked about that. 
Yeah, now because now it's going to depend on how many of our friends have to take flights in like way after the fucking Friday show starts because they grow plants out of test tubes or something. And those plants need to be coddled <laughs> in special ways. I don't even Baby know what the plants. fuck some of our friends are doing. <laughs> <laughs> I promise not to let it affect your traveling. <laughs> 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 I'm such an asshole. I'm a terrible person. Um, no, but uh, JB, I do want to address an email that came to us from another super, super loyal listener, um, Linda Brundies. Linda said, "Hi guys, I have to do. I have to disagree with your comments about Elvis and, corpor- and cultural appropriation. I think they were mostly my comments, but I don't think that you really disagreed with me super hard, JB." Um, Linda goes on to say, I know you aren't the first to make that claim, and he definitely profited from the music he performed. However, keep in mind that Elvis was 21 years old when the album you reviewed came out. He was 19 years old when he went to Sam Phillips' son's studio to record a single for his mom. It was Sam Phillips who reportedly was looking for, quote, a white man with a Negro sound and the Negro feel, end quote, with whom he could, quote, make a billion dollars, end quote, then RCA, who continued to promote Elvis's music. Elvis, on the other hand, was singing and performing the music he loved and was influenced by. I love that take. I actually, I actually totally agree with it as well. Um, Just because, I mean, yeah, he was he was 19 years old. There was no way that he was like, "Look, I'm going to go out there and." And Linda kind of made this point to me. She was like, "There's no 19 year old that's intentionally." Uh, culturally appropriating for profit, (laughs) you know. There's no way that he was like. And yeah, but uh, like to be super clear about this too, the whole idea of cultural appropriation, like that's something from the last 20 years anyway. Like if you would have said that shit in 1956, people would have been like cultural. What the fuck are you talking about? You moron. That's right. You know, it wasn't a thing. So yeah, I get it. So yeah, I mean, Sam Phillips definitely was kind of intentionally doing that though. It sounds like, even though that, it, even though the term wasn't a thing at the time, I mean, she has quotes there. <laughs> oh so, yeah, and if Sam Phillips indeed said those things, which I have zero doubt that he did indeed say those things, yeah, like he was the terrible white supremacist capitalist that everybody kind of hates, yeah, and should hate, I guess. Yep, and Linda was telling me about how Elvis was actually kind of celebrated uh, in the black community down in in that area at the time, and uh, he was he was I mean he would he would sing in like the black clubs and stuff, and he was he was loved by them. So um, I'm glad that she sent us that email because I don't think we were I don't think we were far off or anything, but maybe we should have placed the blame on Sam Phillips instead of Elvis himself. Not that maybe as he grew older he didn't. Uh, continue to do so but you know like initially i i personally think that the only decision that elvis ever made for himself in other words i think that elvis was largely um pushed into directions by people that he surrounded himself with if that makes sense because i do Mm -hmm. think that like elvis was kind of a simple dude and i think that he was just a really talented performer um but i do think that he made one incredibly important decision in his life and that was to learn karate i think that his karate um education and exploration was entirely his own and i think it was the best decision he ever made 
Couldn't agree more. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I'm hearing about Elvis's karate journey for the first time right now, but I mean, hopefully it was a show to come. <laughs> At least. Oh, fucking Elvis, dude. Guy was a maniac. All right. <laughs> But yeah, Linda, thank, thank you though. Yeah, thank you, Linda. And uh, Linda will be coming on the podcast. Actually, uh, it's a little down the road. I'm trying to find the email, so it's about a hundred album or yeah, hundred albums away. So it's gonna. Uh, she wants to come on the the podcast around number two sixty. So you'll be hearing from her a little more down the road. And bonus too, because when Linda comes on, we're also going to do the bonus show with Melissa Etheridge for her too. Yep, exactly. I definitely want to do that. We're going to cover a couple records, I think, that night. So rather than just doing one specific, we're just going to talk about the options that they could have that they could have selected for the list that were all snubbed. Mm-hmm. So. Uh huh. All righty. All right. Uh, JB, did you listen to any new music this week, or were you too busy making music this week? Actually, no. It was a very busy week for me, as you said. I had a couple gigs this week, which is very exciting. The first week that I had two gigs since the pandemic. Uh, before the pandemic, I would frequently play three or four gigs in a week, and I don't know that I'm going to necessarily go back to that. I've been teaching a lot more, which is nice. Um, so I'll probably you know, stick to around one or two a week at the most, I would say. But it was nice to to just have that sense of normalcy kind of return. So two gigs in a week. That is awesome. I like it. Also, awesome news. If anybody is a big Flaming Lips fan, um, and if you don't have anything going on on New Year's Eve, there's this crazy venue down in Tennessee. It's called In the Caverns. And it's literally like a naturally formed cave. Oh, yeah. It's I don't. I don't think it's all that far from where the Bonnaroo site is down in Grundy County in Tennessee. You're talking about but the Cumberland the Caverns, Lips, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. The Flaming Lips are playing a show there on the 30th, excuse me, and then another show on New Year's Eve on the 31st inside the cave. And I'll tell you what, if there was ever a band that was meant to be viewed inside of a cave on New Year's Eve, it's the Flaming Lips. So if you're a big Flaming Lips fan, you should definitely dig into those tickets and try to go to that show if you can. That's a really cool venue. I had some really close friends that actually went down there to see uh, STS9, which is another band that would be crazy. What? Yes. Um, but they have some weird rules down there. Like they, they, they broadcast this, like every concert that they do, it's like a part of a, a local television series. And uh, like you have to sit in your seat essentially the whole time. Like, I don't think you can stand up at all. And I think this is the case for every show down there. You have like an assigned seat and they're very particular about getting up and, and walking out and, and, and even talking and things like that. But totally worth it to go down into a cave and see a band play in that kind of crazy situation, you know, environment. So, so I think that there must be a few different ways to set it up because for the Flaming Lips, like they're very particular. Some shows, they say that it is nothing but standing room only. And then other shows, they are very explicit when they talk about seating. Okay. So I wonder if it's up to like maybe the promoter yeah, or the be. venue itself. Like maybe the venue itself decides, fuck dude, like we can't have these maniac assholes standing up or, you know, maybe we have to have 
this many people sitting down or whatnot, but the Flaming Lips shows are going to be unencumbered, which is probably a good thing. Yeah, that is a good thing. I like that. Yeah, happy to hear that. Yeah. Definitely a venue I hope to I, make it down to at some point in my life, though. Yes. Yeah. yeah that's that's kind of how I felt about it, and I guess that's why I wanted to bring it up, is just that, like, you know, there's so many bucket list venues that, like, the two, like, the three of us talk about routinely, and some of which, you know, I'm excited about knocking off this year. Like, the Gorge is definitely a bucket list venue that I'm excited to be knocking off. At some point in time, I'm going to go watch a band play at Red Rocks, and now I kind of feel like I have to go see a band play in that fucking Bat Cave. Yes, it's on the list. And that Absolutely. list doesn't suck. No, no, but we do have a list that does suck. What do you say? Do you want to? Do you want to jump on in? Let's get back to that shitty list. You want to read three thirty? Right. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Okay, so coming in for this week at number three thirty from nineteen sixty six, the Rolling Stones album Aftermath. Rolling Stone, the magazine says. The Stones sound mean and jaded on Aftermath, writing bad boy songs about swinging London's overnight stars, groupies, hustlers, and parasites. This is the first Stones album completely written by Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, a collection of tough riffs, It's Not Easy, and tougher acoustic blues, high and dry, of girls seeking kicks under my thumb, or just escape, think. Of zooming psychedelia, paint it black, baroque folk, gallantry, I am waiting, and an epic groove, the 11-minute going home. Wow, they just about fucking described every god song. <laughs> they did just do that. Yeah. So what would you say? What do you think? Because what is it? Is this our, this is only our second Rolling Stones, right? Or is it our third? This is our second Rolling Stones. Okay. Of at least four, maybe more. So, because um, I mean, we'll definitely. I think five. Uh, yeah. Has to be right because we'll definitely get exile on Main Street. Um, let it bleed. Let it bleed. And then what's the what's the other one that I'm that I'm and sticky fingers. That's exactly what was yeah that was on the tip of my tongue. Sticky fingers. Um, there are some classic Stones tunes that you just gotta love on this record. I mean, it opens up with painted black. Such an amazing song, <laughs> in my opinion. I mean, everybody knows and loves that song. That song is basically synonymous with the Rolling Stones at this point. Uh, kind of sets the tone, and it, and it does kind of set a dark tone. I like how they said that the Rolling Stones sound mean and jaded. This is one of like two albums this week that, that even the songs that are in a major key, they have just this kind of dark ambiance to it that you can't even really put your finger on why that is, but... A lot of these songs just kind of sound dark, even if they are seemingly joyous and happy. But uh, Painted Black is definitely not seemingly joyous and happy. That's like a straight-up dark song that kind of sets the the tone for the whole record. Um, and then you have Under My Thumb a little bit later on there, another you know classic tune. And a lot of these songs, I mean, I, didn't, I haven't listened to a bunch of times, so it was nice to revisit. I liked the album as a whole. What do you think, Mike? I did too. Um, this is not, I mean, I, the Rolling Stones in general are not a catalog that I'm intimately familiar with in any way, shape or form. Like I definitely know some albums better than others. This was one that I didn't really know, but kind of like you said, right? I mean, Painted Black comes out of the gate and you're like, oh, holy fuck. Um, 
and then Under My Thumb. And those two are the standouts, but those are also the two tracks that everybody knows. I did get a kick out of Coming Home, which was an 11-minute romp through every different vocal amalgamation that Mick Jagger has to offer, which, listen, dude's super fucking talented, so I'm kind of in. I mean, seven minutes in, I was like, really? Like, this is what we're doing? But then after 11 minutes, I was like, yep, we Mm. did that. And I wasn't really all that pissed about it. Um, I'm glad you got a kick out of it. One thing that... Go ahead. Oh, (laughs) I'm sorry. One thing that I do want to point out about this record that I think stands out is Brian Jones, right? So Brian Jones was like the fifth stone before Ronnie Wood took over as like the fifth stone. And Brian Jones is basically responsible for all of like the weird stuff that you hear on here. So even down to the sitar in paint it black, like that's Brian Jones. And I do think that when you uncover all of the weird shit that this guy was playing on this record, if you took all of that away, this record probably blows in all honesty. (laughs) but he really added a lot of shit to it. I think. I think that it blows is maybe a strong word, but I, I really like uh, the sentiment of what you're saying. That like the, those layers that he added in there are, are indispensable for sure. But to me, when the stones are together playing, you know, I'm pretty much going to dig it no matter what, you know, I, I, that's a, again, that's a, big statement to make but I, I the stones just have kind of a certain certain sound when you put them all together and you have mick jagger singing it's just they sound like the stones and the stones sound good to me i mean it's as simple it just boils down to that so like most of their songs even if i don't necessarily love the song itself i don't mind listening to it just because i like the way the band sounds together uh, but that being said i mean there were a lot of really cool layers like that that I loved. Like, I assume he did the dulcimer on Lady Jane. Yes. Yep. Exactly. Uh, Lady Jane was another highlight of me. That was like a cool, a cool little marrying of, it was, it was like folk, but there was also kind of a hint of like either Celtic music or like medieval music. I couldn't even figure out what it was. <laughs> um, and it probably was the dulcimer, I guess, but, and, and then almost like aspects of classical music were, were in that song. And that was, I thought about, I thought about the word Baroque, like yeah. when those types of sounds came up, like that's what, that's what it kind of made me think about. And that was totally Brian Jones doing all that. It had to be. Yeah. For me going home was, I didn't get it. Honestly, like that was my least favorite part of the record. It was way too long. And I expected that <laughs> they were going to do something a little more exciting to like, when you see 11 minutes, like there's, it's gotta be something that changes, right? <laughs> like to make it interesting for 11 minutes, and uh to me not this time around buddy to me it not wasn't fucking this time around. and i like mick jagger but like his vocal stylings just got abrasive to me at, at 11 minutes and it seemed like he was intentionally you know trying to mix it up obviously he was trying to make it exciting for 11 minutes and it didn't work for me but for some people it did um jp JB, I'm curious about Flight 505. Did you hear anything at the top of that song? 
Like just in terms of the mixing? No, 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 It was the chords. And basically like right at the very top of that song, there was like this super short satisfaction chord progression that took place in there. It felt like a satisfaction tease is what it felt like. Huh. But it was just in the intro to the song and then it spun out. And I thought to myself, oh, fucking those assholes. Like they went back to that and they're like, no, dude, this is really good. You got to fucking this expand could be on this. Way bigger. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. I did. I'd have to go back and, 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 and listen. I, I would love to see if I can hear that. But I did make a note about the reason I said the mixing. I made a note about at the beginning, like the piano was super prominent and the rest of the band was like really buried. And then yeah. when it kind of jumped into the main groove, it, it changed and it evened out. But it was really weird, like mixing at the beginning. It was. Um, going back to Under My Thumb, um, Keith Richards on that, he doesn't. he's not even playing guitar. Like apparently he's playing the fuzz bass on that particular song, which fuzz bass appears a lot throughout multiple tracks on this record and holla because that thing is money like i love the tone of that thing oh yeah um that had a marimba on it too it had to be brian jones yes another brian jones that was brian that. jones yes that was brian jones on the fucking marimba yeah that guy smashes yep that, i like that one a lot too um the song think um that that almost like felt like kind of Motowny to me. Just a yeah. little note that I made that I was like, not typical Stones. I like the way the vocals and the music slip together on that. You know what I mean? Because sometimes you get this weird. There's there's kind of a weird dynamic with the Stones where sometimes I think Jagger's voice can almost seem to work in opposition to the music. Like they can be antithetical to each other, which. Don't get me like that's not a bad thing. Like they can just really kind of be opposing forces, but that was a song where I felt like they slipped together so nicely, like a hand into a well-worn glove type of thing. I yeah. I, I liked it. Yeah, I know I liked it too. That was a two-star song for me. So, what were your like? What was your star situation for this album? Uh, did you have a lot of starred songs? Any five stars? No. No, and this and this to me is so typical of the Stones for me. Like I feel this way about every Rolling Stones album with that there's a very small handful of exceptions, but um but basically as you can imagine under my thumb I gave 4 stars, painted black I gave 5 stars, and then everything else I gave 1 star. And but that's not I didn't give everything a star. So in other words, I gave 1 star to I am waiting one star to think one star to flight five Oh five and one star to coming home. I didn't even give the other ones any stars. Yeah. So painted black was a five star for me. I mean that one, there's no way that one's not a five star um, under my thumb. I actually only gave two as much as like, mm. as much as I noted that, that that's a classic stone song. People love it. Yeah. It's never been one of my favorites, but I do like it. Um, I gave Lady Jane three. I actually like that one a lot. So, wow, his Jagger's voice is so baby-like on Lady Jane. That's one thing that I did love about it. Like his voice was so young sounding. Yeah, I love Under My Thumb though. I mean, I fucking love it. Like because I think you get a very naive sounding Mick Jagger voice there too, and it's not even naive. It's um, it's like a vulnerability that he never goes back to. 
like later in his career when Mick Jagger becomes fucking Mick Jagger like yeah. there's rarely any vulnerability that he displays vocally but you're actually getting that on some of these tracks which I really like yeah I get that for sure so for me I think this is this album it's got painted black on it. It's got under my thumb. It's got, and it's a big stones record. It belongs on the list. I think it could, I think it could drop down a little bit to be honest with you, just because I know there's going to be some other stones records that are more impactful, like just to me personally. And if so, if you're asking me, I'd probably drop it down a little bit. Yeah. I think I'm in the same boat. If this, if this would, if we would have seen this 25 or 30 records ago, I would not have been upset by that. Yeah. I I don't hate it where it is, but yeah, I mean, I'd even go as far as like, if you told me 50, 50 down, I'd be okay with it. But I mean, not that I'm going to write a letter. I'm kind of, I'm kind of cool anywhere between 300 and 400. The closer it gets to 300, the more, um, the more homeristic um, the slot becomes, right? Like if this appeared at 302, I'd be like, ah, well, somebody at fucking Rolling Stones loves the Rolling Stone. You know what I mean? Like it would it would feel too homeristic, but I, I think you could justify it in a certain way because yeah. it really is like a really unique snapshot of the Rolling Stones at that particular moment in time. So Definitely. Uh, I'm going to read Rex Todd's thoughts on this record real quick do it first of all he says sorry about missing last week it won't happen again (laughs) for those who (laughs) listened in last week we were very concerned about the lack of email from rex todd so here's what rex has to say about aftermath this is the stones that i know and love starting with the classic tracks of painted black to under my thumb so yeah mentioning the same ones we did the bluesy guitar chords of don't you bother me strike a chord of great rolling stone tracks this album is the Rolling Stones, hand down, hands down, loves this album and his place. So yeah, he feels pretty strongly about this record. He does, and he likes the placement of it. The fact that he loves the placement of it is, um, that's interesting to me, because I wasn't nearly as strong about it. I, um, I mean, in... I can't disagree with a lot of what he's saying, though. Like, I really did like this record a lot. I liked it more than what I thought I would. It's very good stones. So it just comes down to if you like the stones or not, you know? Like, it, it's, like, just like he said, it's, yeah. it's classic stones. And that's kind of what I said, too, when we first started, when I listed those, you know, these these big, huge, iconic songs that are on it. So if you like the stones, listen to it. If you hate the stones, yeah, don't, it. you know? And you definitely know if you like the stones or not. And if you're like, Oh, I've never, never heard of them. <laughs> it's like, uh, you definitely know. So. Amen. Amen. All right. What do you say? Should we move on? Three, two, nine or. Yes, sir. So coming in at three twenty nine, we have DJ shadow and introducing Northern California beat junkie, Josh Davis, AKA DJ shadow spent a year and a half chasing his dream of the ultimate sample record. And nailed it with his debut LP. End Traducing is the height of the mid-90s trend of the hip-hop DJ as an experimental sound painter. A mix of head trip beats, absurdist samples, and old-school block party showmanship that touched listeners way beyond the turntable under the turntablist underground. End Traducing was a big influence on OK Computer. Johnny Greenwood of Radiohead recalled, Interesting, I would not have thought that at all. 
Um, really? So this is this is one that yeah, I guess this is one that you uh, you didn't really know, right, Mike? Zero familiarity. What'd you think? I knew DJ Shadow just because like he, you know, he popped up as a kind of a guest producer here and there on a couple of different records that I really, really enjoy. Um, so, I mean, I was familiar with the name, but dude, I'd never dug into an entire release of his and nor had I ever dug into this and good God almighty. I mean, it's special, man. It Fucking really is deliciously special. Yeah. I think I had mentioned last week that I, I listened to this whole album whenever we did Jay Dilla's donuts because mm-hmm. I was, I was just like fascinated by the genre in general. Cause I hadn't listened to a whole lot of it. Um, just the whole genre of like, instrumental hip hop, you know? So I kind of went down like a Wikipedia yeah. rabbit hole, which led me to basically like, I don't think he was like the very first person to ever do this, but he kind of defined this genre DJ shadow did here, <laughs> like with this record, he was one of the first, like to really come to prominence doing this. And, uh, like when I was reading about the roots of this, of this genre, every, everybody was talking about DJ shadow and, and a lot of people were talking about this record. So I listened to this whole thing back then and I honestly didn't think we were going to get it. So when we were, when we were looking ahead <laughs> at the list and then I saw this, I was kind of excited. That is exciting. So when you, di- so when you discovered it because of Jay Dilla, I mean, was it one of those records that you listened to once or twice or was it one of those things that you winded up? I mean, how many times did you go back to the well before it popped up on the list? Once or twice. Yeah, it, it wasn't like okay. I be, became right. one of my top favorites or anything, but I definitely dug it. And uh, yeah, I was just kind of listening just to several other artists because uh, I really loved Jay Dilla. That was like one of my one of my favorite discoveries from the list. Not like my top, but um, I wasn't familiar with Jay Dilla. I'd heard of him, but I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't intimately familiar with that that donuts record, which I ended up really, really loving. So, yeah, no, listen, I completely agree with you, and not to not to spoiler alert where this is going, but basically, there's a handful of skits. Like that's to me is the best way to describe some of the tracks on this record. Like it's a sample, or maybe a couple of samples that are mashed up together, but it really comes off as a skit. Anything that's not a skit. Um, I guess there's, I guess I have four songs that I only put three stars next to everything else. I either put four or five stars next to, and this might be the record that I have more. I don't know. I might have more four and five stars on this record than I've put next to any other record that we've done thus far. And partly that could be just because of the volume. Like there's a large number of tracks on this record. And that doesn't mean that they're all super short. Like that was kind of the way that Jay Dilla was structured, right? Like Jay Dilla had a bunch of tracks that were like a minute, a minute 20, a minute 30 seconds. Like when it's not a skit on here, like these are long songs. And there are songs that have like a rhythm section, a bass part, a melody, um, and granted, those are all provided by different previous source materials. But man, this record to me is but the way is he the, puts them one together. Of the, 
Yeah, it's one of the best examples of how a DJ is a musician. Oh, yeah. And anyone that says that they're not is is crazy. Um, the only situation where, and I've made arguments before about like just pure mashup artists, like if you're just putting two songs together. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not making any argument right now. Like, but specifically comes to my mind. I, I've I've argued about girdle talk before, um, and not Dude, just not girl just with you. So I know you do because yeah, we had a whole we had a conversation about it one night. Maybe we had too many <laughs> too many white claws that night. But uh, <laughs> but um, but with this, this is like obviously he's a musician here. You know, he's like there's oh geez, Bo's stepping across the. There we go. <laughs> Thanks, production manager Justin Jantis. <laughs> um handling though yeah he's 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 thinking very musically here he's very song structure aware i mean he's he's using dynamics everything that he's he's doing is musical like if you're going to argue that dj shadow or jay dilla for that matter is not a musician then you're fucking crazy yeah amen amen um standout tracks for me my favorite track on this record, hands down, was Midnight in a Perfect World. It's on the next page for me. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, okay, yeah. Um, I think we're pretty close to the same page there. For Midnight in a Perfect World, I gave that one five stars. And I... Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. And uh, well, the one little note that I made on that was... In my opinion, this this one is like the perfect marrying of the styles that he had throughout the record. Because some of the other songs were kind of varying in style, and just the way he put his keys together, and uh, the just the way he sampled things. Um, but that one was just the perfect like sam. Like if you were to listen to one that like when we do our, if you're going to listen to one, that'll probably be my recommendation, and I assume yours too, based on what you've been saying. So this is what I wrote. And it's not a super long description or anything, but I mean, I think it captures everything that you and I are both trying to say. I wrote, this song is near perfect for me. Gentle thinker with intrigue and character. I love this mood. The female vocals are all perfect. Yep. And that's kind of what I was talking about with styles because a lot of this, another thing I want to say is just so much of this record is just ethereal. Like there yeah. are just layers. That's the best way I can think of to describe it. It's borderline ambient at times. Um, there. Well, are, I was just, I was literally just getting ready to interrupt you and say that I hope Brian Eno listened to this record and then contemplated suicide eternally. Like, because he realized that his form <laughs> of ambient music sucked and that this was actually like what he wanted to do, but actually done well. Hmm. <laughs> mm. i think brian's brian Eno's probably doing okay and happy with his uh output Fuck but, you, brian Eno. yeah mike does not like brian Eno at all the only thing he hates more is roxy music <laughs> uh, but yeah like a, a lot of this is, is 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 borderline ambient like i said uh there are just layers and layers of these like reverby instruments that he puts in the background. I don't know if those are samples or if those are samples that he's thrown a bunch of reverb onto, or if he just found those samples already that reverby. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
Yeah, but I actually I don't think that he I don't think that he tinkered with any of his samples. So then he must have just found all these kind of ethereal background noises from records and put them behind because a lot of this is is very vibey and you know (laughs) I get what you're saying, but we've talked about this, right? Like there are really, really specific sounds to specific eras of music. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like what do you mean? So what do you mean specifically? So if you like, if you said to yourself, "I want to create a composition, and I want it to be like, I want the melody, let's say, to be really, really just rich with reverb," I think for like a student of music, it would be it would it wouldn't be as challenging for them to say, "Oh, okay, yeah." So I want a melody, but I want it like just dripping with fucking reverb. Yeah, I'm gonna go back to the '50s. Like I want to listen to some surf guitar from the '50s and see what I can find, you know. Versus like if I wanted to find, I don't know, a snare drum that sounded particularly fucking shitty hollow with a bunch of reverb and then you'd be like oh i'm gonna go to the fucking early 1980s and look for that shitty snare drum for the early 80s does that make sense yeah and i I think you'd probably have to go for like some of the some phil specter shit if you're looking for that reverby vocal sound (laughs) to tell you the truth (laughs) um because when i think 50s guitar i think more like slap back delay which is a different sound for sure um instead of the reverby but but yeah, I know what you're saying. I mean, the, I the sounds like, are the, the sounds are out there. They're available. Yeah. Um, I really liked the second track a lot. Building stem with a grain of salt. Building steam with a grain yes. of salt. Did you like that one? Yeah. Yeah, I put four stars next to it. That was a. I put that three was, on it, but I loved it. Yeah. That was one of the only songs that I had heard before. Um, and I had one? actually heard it from like a Pandora mix. And the only reason why I knew that I'd heard it before is because the title is so fucking bizarre that when I saw the title, I was like, oh shit, I've heard this song before. I know this song. Yeah. The drums were really great on that. That, that was a drummer named George Marsh that he sampled for that one. Um, or no, George, sorry. George Marsh was the talking guy, not the, the, but the drums were really cool. The drums, he was like doing yeah. these crazy mixed up things where he was like cutting them up and it was just a regular drum track that he sampled, but then he, he obviously like picked out parts of it and uh, rearranged it. But there was like a, there was a guy that was talking throughout that one. Yeah. That's also got the Zappa. Like that's got Zappa at the big, at the top of that song. That's Frank Zappa. Talking? Yes. No, no, no. Yes. That was a that was a drummer. That was a drummer named George Marsh that was talking. What the hell was he talking about then? Yeah, the guy that was like uh that was talking about how he's a teacher of the drums and he's also a student and and he uh yes. yeah, that was that was George Marsh. Was that guy's name? Oh my goodness. That sounded just like I swear to god, I thought that that was Frank Zappa. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, kind of similar. Wow. But I yeah. love it either way. Yeah, definitely. I also loved What Does Your Soul Look Like? Loved that one. Uh, that was the sixth track. If you're looking for it, Mike. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah, I was looking for it. Okay, yep. 
What did you think about stem long stem the medley? I dug that one. It was a three star one for me. Um, kind of melancholy sounding throughout a lot of it. And and mm-hmm. that was yeah that was the one that had like very two two very distinct parts. Um, and then it, there was like this crazy dissonant string part string part that kind of ended the first half. I don't know where he got that, but then, that. It, but yeah, but then it got yeah. like really ambient in the second half with like a spoken line. I can't remember what the speaking was about, but th- yeah, that was a very ambient, ambient second half. Well, and it was funny because that was like the first taste of that organ that you had. And then a couple of tracks later, organ donor, I fucking loved like the, um, it was like the title of that song is so ridiculously cute when you think about like what he's doing in terms of sampling that fucking organ and literally having it play center stage in the song. It was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And th- yeah, that, that was like, I loved the organ sound that came right after, right after there was like a little f- interlude at the beginning of organ donor and it was like a funk band. Do you know who that was? It almost sounded yes. like James Brown. Who was it? Dude, I have no clue. I have no clue. It might've been James Brown, dude. Have you, have you found any good resource for trying to uncover like what all these samples are that these guys use? Like on this album in particular or just in general? Yes. I mean, in general, but specific to this album too. I mean, I want to say there's like a website called who sampled who or something like that. I think you're right. Who sampled.com. Yeah. There's a, there's a website called who sampled. Um, so I'm sure you could figure it out via that. Yes. I have no doubt that you could. Um, okay. So what are your, what are your overall thoughts on this? I mean, obviously you'll love it. I love it too. What do you want to do with it in terms of this list? Cause I'm kind of like you, I'm just super excited that it's even here for God's sakes. I'm excited that it's here. Cause like I said, I didn't expect to see it. I'm, I think it does belong on the list. I'm happy to see it. The question I have for you is this versus donuts. What's your preference? Um, I think they're mutually exclusive of each other. Hmm. And I would probably prefer, you know, I probably prefer this one. I mean, if I just go by my own, by my own goofy ass star ranking system on here, I've, I mean, and I know that I gave a ton of stuff on donuts, like a bunch of stars, I don't think I gave nearly as many though as I did on this. Yeah. For what me, what about you? I think I would say Donuts, and I loved this, but Donuts is a really special record. It just kind of goes back to, um, like the influence thing because this was kind of one of the first. This was basically like a genre-defining album here, and Donuts was several years later. You know when there was plenty of that this kind of music going on, so. I probably enjoy the music on Donuts a little bit better, personally. But I did like this a lot. But, again, that's saying a lot because I loved Donuts. Like, really, really loved it. So, And I love this, too. But I think if I had to pick one, which I think it's a comparison that can be made just because, I mean, it really is kind of a, not like a limited genre, but, I mean, it's it's all sampled hip, like sampled hip-hop, basically, instrumental. You know what I mean? Maybe they have different yeah. styles, but it's all the kind of kind of the same idea. 
it's it's a similar concept. It's just um, I think it comes down to what's what's the targeted end result, right? Because Jay Dilla's targeted end result, I think, is quite a bit different than what DJ Shadow was trying to do, um, and that might be why you kind of take um, donuts over introducing, you know, whereas yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to gravitate a little bit more towards what I think DJ shadow is trying to do with introducing, but either way, both are great albums. I love the fact that both of them are on here. If anything, I like the placement of where DJ shadow is. And, and I'd probably like to see the two a little bit closer together by moving Jay Dilla up. And that's you know kind of I mean? why I brought that up is because that's my question is, about the placement versus versus donuts, I would definitely like to see donuts moved a little bit further up, um, maybe even ahead of this. So, and and I don't hate the placement of this at all. Like I think it's appropriate. But yeah, great record. I mean, for the hip hop fans out there, uh, you probably don't know this one. I don't. I feel like a lot of people don't know this one. So so get out there and check introducing out for sure. Absolutely. Um, and with that being said, Rex Todd says, I'll give propers to Rolling Stone for this pick. Excuse me. I'm surprised they had the pinche huevos for even knowing about DJ Shadow. I love this album. It's pretty incredible to listen to. It's a multi-multiple listen album. Multi-multiple. Yeah, I just made that word. <laughs> yeah, I just made up that word. Fuck off. I listened to this album 19 years ago and it still holds up. The mixes fade-ins and outs, breakdowns, the choice of instrumental selection is just nothing short of a mad genius. Still love it. It's a perfect spot for this album. Boom. 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 Rex loves it. I'm glad to hear it. Boom. Um, I am too. Okay. All right. Should we do it? Should we move on? on? Let's do it. So at this point, really, this is kind of, this next album is why Justin wanted to come on. Really... I wanted him to come on. <laughs> JB asked me to come on. By yes. by he wanted to come on, I mean that I like asked him and he said, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so Justin's joining us reluctantly tonight to discuss uh 328. You want to read off 328, Mike? Yes. 328 from 2013. Justin Jance's favorite album of all time, Vampire Weekend, <laughs> Modern Vampire City. Right. Justin said in text message to us on Halloween 2012 with their new hometown, New York subsumed in a blackout vampire weekend went on late night TV to play an atheist reggae jam called unbelievers dressed as skeletons. It was a perfect introduction to modern vampires of the city, a record that darkened their buoyant indie pop as Ezra Koenig sang about moving beyond his post-college years into something scarier and weirder, hitting a cloudy peak with a beautifully worried Dylan-esque travelogue, Hannah Hunt. Justin, that was really, really poetic, what you wrote about Vampire Weekend. We appreciate your take on that. Maybe you could expand on that now. <laughs> I obviously did not write that. Um, but no, I guess uh, when JB said that, or when we heard... Mike, a little bit uh, closer. Sorry, Justin. No, that's fine. Uh, yeah, so I guess we were talking and said that Modern Vampires was going to be on the podcast this week, so I had invited JB over to come listen to the vinyl. Uh, because I do enjoy the record. It's not my favorite record of all time by any means. But, uh, you know, I, I, I really did kind of, you know, this came out in 2013. And that was sort of the time, like, for me, when I started looking for some new music. I had been, 
you know, just throwing so much fish and Grateful Dead in April's face for so long that I think she was kind of ready for me to start like, you know, going out and finding some other things. So it was like, I think Daft Punk, the Random Access Memories came out around that same year. Um, some new Spoon was coming out, like the National and these guys. So it was kind of my exploration phase. And, and this, I don't know, this, this record kind of sat with this me. This is so. one you kind of hit upon and yeah. really, and you liked a lot. Yeah. Uh, Random Access was the same year. I believe so. That's exciting because I mean we're gonna we're gonna hit that one at some point soon on this list. I guarantee that one's on here, right? Wouldn't you think so? It, it is. I know for sure. You know and for sure it is yeah. on there. Yeah. Um, is it north of a hundred? Uh, that I don't know, Mike. Um, but I do know yeah, it's obviously it. higher than this. But I would rank that higher than this. So. Um, yeah. So I that's think, that's yeah. a founded placement for sure. Um. So what were some standouts for you on this song wise? So I think last time I was on, we talked, I, I, I'm more of a lyrics guy yeah. like, kind of than you guys. So, you know, there, there's something in, you know, a lot of it, like even from the start off track, uh, obvious bicycle, um, you know, it's just like, there's these, you kind of can get into it like lyrically and see, you know, that there's like a bit of depth to it and really, you know, like more meaningful than just your normal indie pop song. Yeah. So, you know, this one like kind of goes through and it's like, you know, uh, you don't need to shave your face every day because nobody's really looking. Right. Dude, that, uh, that was so funny to me. That was like, that was like one of the, the harshest insults you could ever give anyone. <laughs> like, don't even fucking bother shaving your face because literally nobody fucking even has time to look at it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, had me thinking about like hip hop beefs. Like if you said that to a, to a, a like a rapper, you were beef, they'd be like, Oh, that's that's fucking harsh, man. <laughs> that's cold, brother. That's, that's cold. cold. But yeah, no, fan, like really good lyric though. I totally agree. What else you got? Um, from this one in particular, there was one other thing that I did really sort of appreciate. Um, right. So it says, uh, "While the sun's coming up, cover ground." Right. And if you find some love for these clowns, turn around. Right. So like going through life and things like that, you know, there, there's a lot of things like get up early, do your shit, like go through, go about life, but like stop every little bit to listen and, you know, maybe gravitate towards some, some people, but not yeah. everybody, you know? I like it. Yeah. Which song was that from? Uh, track one, obvious. Oh, that was from obvious bicycle. Yeah. What the fuck does that mean? Obvious bicycle. I don't know. Yeah. I have no idea. Do you know, Mike? No. I don't think anybody so, knows. Like so much of this was so far over my head. <laughs> yeah, that's. I totally agree with what you said, Justin. And I, like, let's preface this by saying that I I do like this album, but there's also like the pretentious aspect with a lot of this for me. Like a lot of this comes across as like I'm just gonna make this make my whatever my message is. I'm gonna I'm not gonna boil it down. I'm gonna do the opposite. I'm gonna make it as convoluted as I possibly can, so that I can <laughs> so that I can sound really smart. And I mean, I'm sure the guy is really smart, you know. But there's that aspect for me. But I, again, like I prefaced it with, I like this album, and there are some good lyrics that I really like. And the ones that you listed off, I, there's fantastic. I don't feel the way about those, you know. I mean, I, I agree. I think it is very pretentious. It's forward and, you know, but there's like that little bit of beauty in it because it's so raw. Yeah. And, you know, matter of fact in a way. Yeah. Um, in, in music, music wise. is super easy to listen to. Super easy. Yeah. Like, 
Yeah, there's there's no part of Vampire Weekend that anybody could legitimately bitch about. Ezra has a great voice. His lyrics are, I think, at times confounding, but then at other times, like I think they're really revelatory, and that's cool. Like I like. There are some songs on this record that are really, really good. Unbeliever, Unbelievers is fantastic. Um, Diane Young is really, really good. I loved Everlasting Arms. Um, it's really, it's listen. I think it's really, really good. Is it the fucking three hundred and twenty eighth greatest album of all time? Though, that seems crazy to me. As good as this record may be. Yeah. Um, that's something I kind of thought about a lot this week. And I have to say, like, there were a lot of good records this week. The song that I had stuck in my head the most of any record this week was Unbelievers. Just that whole hook. Really? Uh, um, is this the fate that half of the world has planned for me? Like, I literally couldn't get that out of my head all week. You know, it's a, it's a fantastic chorus. It's really, really well written. Um, and because that was my immediate reaction to and not that I've strayed that far from it, but I started thinking like, because again, like I've argued a lot about the style or the, the content versus uh, the versus impact kind of thing. Obviously, there's not a whole lot of impact that this album has had at this point, maybe some, but, you know, um, you got something to say about that? So, I mean, and go like uh, back to like the whole, you know, like this point in time, like I was looking for new music and stuff. Um, this actually, a few songs, Unbelievers, and maybe a few other ones that I won't name because I don't know exactly, but this is what you hear like on the loops and stuff along with Daft Punk. Like that random access memory is like if you're out and about in a loud bar and you listen for the background music. This is on much, much more than you think. This is it? Yeah. No, I believe it for sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, the content of this, this is a good fucking record. And I started thinking like, uh, how many of these records are are on this list just because of who they are? And like, if this record was recorded by some artist that we all knew, but it was exactly this record back in like the seventies or something, would it be on the list for sure? You know, I, I, I think so. Probably. I think it's a really good record. Um, and again, like the, the band hasn't had a whole lot of time to make a huge impact on the music, uh, world in general, but I'm still undecided on if it belongs in the list or not. And I was totally decided before this week. I was like, absolutely not, um, because of all the snubs. But now my think my thinking is more like maybe it maybe it really is this good. But obviously, this, there are some records on this list that are not. We can take those off and put the snubs we want on there. <laughs> you know. Did you guys ever feel like you were listening to a more like? I'm gonna be really careful whenever I say this. The vocal qualities of Ezra Koenig reminded me so much of Paul Simon. Do you guys get that? Yeah, a little bit. I won't say that I thought that before, but I'm not opposed. It didn't to occur to me either, yeah. but when you say it, uh, I'm not like immediately yeah. like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" Yeah. <clears throat> the thing that the thing that 
like pulls me away from that is like I think back to Paul Simon's debut that we did on this list not too long ago and all the way back to like his first album from his breakup with Art Garfunkel like he was so in tune with like the whole world vibe and just like really wildly eclectic music and I don't think you get that on this one but the lyrical content and the way that the songs are structured, it made it it really made me think about Paul Simon a lot. Yeah. I get that for sure. Um, the other thing I wanted to say about this record is and I'm pulling up the guy's name because I don't wanna I don't wanna say the guy's name, but uh so the one of the biggest highlight highlights for me is the production. This this guy Rostim Bat, oh man, I don't even know how to pronounce this. Bat Manglish, I think is is how you say it. Rostim Bat Manglish, uh, he was the the producer for these guys for quite a while. He's since left the band. Actually, I think they had some kind of falling out, but uh, he is kind of heralded as one of the best indie rock producers of all time, or very well. He you know, wrote. He wrote all the music on the record too. Yeah, and and Ezra wrote all the vocals, and he did the singing. Um, but uh, but yeah, Rostam, I don't Rostam, I don't know how to say that. He did all of the all of the music, and the production is really brilliant on this. Like, it was Everlasting Arms that really kind of led me to the thought that I'm about to write. But I, it was definitely prevalent throughout, which was like their songs, the 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 instrumentation is never static for very long. Like, like, like for example, the, we're coming up on a Prince record here that we're going to talk about in a little bit. And what I love about that is it, it, it just sounds so great. And it, it's almost the same the whole time. Like the instrumentation is pretty much the same. It's all like four, four and you, you hear what you hear and that's what you're going to get for pretty much the whole song. You're going to get the guitar. You're going to get the synth. You're going to get the drums and they're all going to be there the whole time. Whereas this is not like he's very, you know, in tune with the textures that he's he's using. It's never static for very long. The forefront is kind of passed among different instruments. Like for four bars, the guitar will be what you hear. And then for the next four bars, you literally will hear no guitar and you'll just hear a synthesizer. And then for the next four bars, it'll be acapella. You know, it's like, it's very, like this, this stuff has got to be hard to pull off live, at least the way that they do it um, on this record because... It's not like a a band is just playing this. Like it's it's a it's a band. It, the song is being played by a band, but it's like very, very. I'm trying to figure out how to say what I'm trying to say, but it's very produced. Like it's not it's not just a band playing it. Like it's 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 very dynamic in the way that it's being presented to you throughout a song. You know, I saw them once at the Man Center in Philly, um, and I don't I don't think it lost anything as far as that goes. Yeah, really. Wow. Were we going to say, Mike? Because, dude, I totally get where you're going with that. Like, to me, and I haven't ever sat down for, like, a full set of Vampire Weekend. I've had multiple opportunities at different festivals. I've just never done it because I've never been that big of a fan of them. But, um, But this seems like a record that I've listened to it now multiple times. I feel like if Diane Young came on on a jukebox, I would be able to pick it out. 
but I feel like if I was watching Vampire Weekend live, it would take me, I think it would take me longer than what it should to recognize what song they were playing. And a lot of that is just because of the production quality of the studio material versus what it would actually sound like to try to reproduce that, that same music. Yeah, because it's very production based. Like the the producer had a huge hand in the way that this record sounds. Yeah. What do you know when he left the band? Because they dropped a new record in 2019, and I he's I not on that one. I did not get into that one. Um. Yeah, he's not on that one. Let me let me see if I can find out exactly when he left. He left the band in 2016. So Justin is officially Team Rostam. Good to know. Well, it doesn't sound like it was like uh, in bad standing or anything. He says that in, in 2016, he announced that he had left Vampire Weekend to pursue solo projects, but that he would continue to collaborate uh, with Ezra on future projects and even on Vampire Weekend songs. So he might have done had some hand in, in some of the later releases. But he nice. just, just kind of wanted to do his own thing is what it sounds like. Okay, so um, I am going to move this album to number 483, and I'm going to replace this album with uh, King Crimson and the Court of the Crimson King. So, uh, yeah. What do you guys want to do with it? Because <laughs> that was the that was the conversation we were having last time when we were when and and. I've, I've talked to Justin about this a couple times throughout the week and he's totally agreed. I'm like thinking, Oh, so this album is better than in the court of the Crimson King. It's better than Pink Floyd's animals. It's better than, uh, any Frank Zappa album. It's better than any violent films album. That's a little crazy yep. to me, but that doesn't necessarily say that much about this album. It just says a lot about this shitty list. Cause there were a lot of out. Uh, there were a lot of spots that could have been taken by those records that weren't, that were taken by far yeah. shittier records for me than this one. That being said, I would drop it down a little bit, but I'm cool leaving it on here. I think it's a good, it's a well put together record. And uh, I think that, like Justin was saying, like that you hear these things in the background at at bars and restaurants. Like this is one that kind of has seeped into people's lives and will stick around for a while. So I think leave it on, put it in somewhere in the four hundreds, and and I'm happy with that personally. What do you think, Justin? Uh, yeah, I mean, I definitely want it on the list. I don't need it to be here, um, but at the same time, I would. If this wasn't going to be on the list and I had to replace it with something similar back to that whole exploration of music around that time, I would replace this album with my snub that I'm going to give you now um, oh. after the disco by Broken Bells. Oh, geez. Wow. That's powerful, dude. And actually, I'm pulling up. I have a snub list here saved on my computer, and I'm going to put that in there right now, and we can do it as a snub episode sometimes if you would like justin um next, maybe next time you're maybe next time you're on the podcast we can do a bonus episode and do and do that so what tell me one more time uh after the that'd disco. be fun yeah after broken the bells. disco by broken bells mike you like that one um so too, right? 
I did, listen, I love that record, but there's no way I would put that record at number 326 in terms of the greatest records of all time. No, so I guess, yeah, I was a little confusing there. I would drop this down still, but... But then repl- yeah. if you yeah. were to... Right. Exactly. But then replace it. Right. To your point, yeah. Lee just... Lee Stamper of OnlyLee.com, he just commented and said, this isn't even the best Vampire Weekend album. So he, Yeah, Contra. That's a, yeah. Contra, fucking Contra, right? Is that like, the one how with the fuck? Is that the one with yes, horchata? Fuck yeah, dude! Yeah, dude. Contra is a fucking ripping album. Like, if this was Contra, I don't even know that I would bitch that much about it because Contra is so much fun, like so much energy. But I don't know, man. This felt like a fucking. This felt like a goober. So Mike's not a fan. He, you want it off the list, this one? I, I said if you want to move this to like 483, yeah. I'd be okay with that. But I want this replaced because to me, this is where King Crimson and the Court of the Crimson King belongs. Like low 300s. That's or higher for me. For King, I, I think that, that that's the most glaring snub we've encountered thus far. Is 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 in the court of the Crimson King, and honestly, in terms me, of history, right? In terms of like musical history and significance of how music changed. Yeah, I mean, and even in terms of just content, I mean, it's a fantastic record. I almost love every single song on it. You know, I know it's crazy. And honestly, no, for me, can't. that's more like a that's got to be north of two hundred, uh, maybe north of one. I thought you were going to say that. Yeah. yeah. For me, it's not there, but that's just because, I mean, I do love it. Like, I think it's super important, but I'm putting it on the list more because of its influence than I am because of how moving it is to me. Yeah. And, and influentially, it at least belongs to be here, like influentially. Yeah. You know, fucking crazy, dude. Let's not, not, let's stop. Let's yeah, not, let's not do this. We don't need to go down that road because we've we've done it before. So um, let's read Rex Todd real quick on that. I'll do that. So Rex Todd on Modern Vampires of the City by Vampire Weekend says, I mean, I'm a fan. It's a good album. Why is this so high on the list? I don't get it. Take it or leave it on the list. Closer to 350 for me, which is not a huge jump from where it's at. So um Sounds like he liked it okay if he wants it at 350. Yeah. Yeah. Which is fine. I, I don't I don't hate people that have that opinion by any stretch of the imagination. I don't yeah. hate that at all. Yeah, I mean I, I honestly I'm super glad I listened to it. Uh I did add it to digital and it's gonna be I'm gonna revisit it. I I like it a lot. But just the the list thing was a bit of a challenge for me this week. But I think I kind of came around, and I'm cool putting it putting it in the 400 somewhere. I don't know how much I'm going to go back and revisit it. To be perfectly honest with you, I'm not the biggest fan of Vampire Weekend. Um, it wasn't bad though. It's yeah. a good record. Any final thoughts, Justin? Um, no, I guess I'm just I I do I like Contra better. Uh, I just I didn't bring that up because I, I thought that this was your guys' first experience really with. Uh, Vampire Weekend in general. Pretty much for me. I mean, I knew that one song, but okay. But, yeah, I don't. 
Thanks. So you think I should check out Contra? Sure. Okay. You yes, familiar with you Contra, should check Mike? out Contra. Yeah, you are familiar with it? Okay, cool. All righty. Well, let's move on, guys. Uh, Justin's going to stick around for the rest. He went ahead and listened to the, the last couple of records as well, right? Boom. And he's prepared. So 327 is The Who Live at Leeds. Our second live album on the list. Faced with the impossible task of following up the grand statement of Tommy. Uh, spoiler alert. <laughs> Fucking spoiler alert, you dickheads. In brackets, after Tommy, it says C number 190. So we God got that coming up. Them. The Who just cranked up their amps. Rather than wade through 80 hours of American shows for a live album, Pete Townsend claimed he burned those tapes in a huge bonfire and selected a concert at the University of Leeds in England. Live at Leeds is a warts and all live album, including an accidental clunking sound on my generation. There's no finesse, just the pure power of a band able to play as loud as it wants to. What'd you guys think about, uh, about live at Leeds? Should we make the editorial comments now? It's worth making the editorial comments. So, um, I, merely made notes on the original 1970 release of live at Leeds, which was not anywhere near the entire concert. I did listen to the entire concert. And so I am certainly familiar with it and I'm ready to talk about the whole thing. But, um, but I do think that it makes sense to say that there have been just multiple versions of this particular release done and most of the ones that you can find on streaming services are basically of the entire show. And which I is do cool think, and, I d- worth and yeah, I, I think we're in the same boat. I listened to the whole thing, but took notes on the main album. And I do think the album that was put on the list was the OG album. I think that's what they, they indicate the 1970 release. Um, and yep. so I think that that's what they are doing is they're putting the original release, which is only six songs. It's just a vinyl, two sides. And I think that's what that's what it, they are asserting to be in this position on the list is that version. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And to be clear, that version is fucking really kick ass. Yeah. Okay. Like it's unfucking believably good. And I don't like the who. Like I actively dislike the who because I do think that Peter Townsend is a creepy fucker. Like I think that he had child porn on his computer. And if you have child porn on your computer, you're a creepy fucker. So wait, what? Fuck you, I, don't Peter know. I don't know anything about that. Jesus, dude, just do some Google, just do some Googling later. Okay. Google Peter Townsend child porn later. It's a terrible thing. But what I do want to talk about is fucking John Entwistle. Can Holy shit, dude! Talk about John Entwistle. <laughs> Holy shit! I'm so glad you say that because that was like, God damn! Oh my it. god! Like every other note in my entire page is about the bass. Like almost Holy every fuck. other note. Um, so so fucking good. By far the highlight of this live album. Um, amazing player, amazing bassist. The choices that he made throughout the songs were just perfect. He's so bold. Love it. Amazing. I've, I feel like an asshole because I've played bass since I was in sixth grade in junior high school. And this past week 
has been the first time that I've heard Jaunt and Whistle's bass. That is fucking criminal. And I'm actually, I feel like every young bass player on this planet should be forced to listen, maybe even to this fucking recording, because the way that he brings out, dude, I don't know, man. Like his bass is, it's totally its own thing. I'm like a little bit surprised, not not that surprised, but because it's amazing. But um, when I was writing about this, a, a lot of these, almost every song actually, except for the very first one, his bass is super overdriven, and Mike yeah. does not like overdriven bass, right? Um, no, but the thing is, is that it's not overdriven; it's over trebled, is what it is. And there's a distinction because when you talk about overdriving a tone, you're talking about distorting the tone. He's not distorting the tone. He's just throwing so much fucking treble on top of it that it almost sounds like an overdrive, but it only sound it only almost sounds like an overdrive because he's also using a pick on top of that. And so it's like the pick, the super high treble, but dude it creates magic. It's so good. Yeah, and I know what you're saying. It is definitely trebly, and it's 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 he's definitely using a pick for sure. But um, I mean, there's some growliness there, in my opinion. I, I know. I think it's I, definitely listen, a little bit overdriven. I think it's he's using a, a tube amp that is he's pushing the limits on, and it's breaking up for sure. Like no doubt. I know. It. And. Uh, I love it, uh, and but I didn't think you were going to. I even wrote down. I was like, "Overdriven bass." I love it. Mike won't. <laughs> that's what I wrote no, down. No, <laughs> man. But that's what's crazy is like, even what you described though. What you described was a player that's literally pushing the equipment harder than what he should, if he wants it to sound really clean. Does that make sense? Whereas like, like the thing that I hate is the artificially overdriven bass tone Yeah, where they're literally like throwing a bass through a fucking overdrive pedal that I despise, but that's I mean, like I two kinds really of really actively despise that there's like two kinds of overdrive, right? I mean, there's the original overdrive was just the fact that they did not have loud enough amps or any way to, yeah, so they were overdriving the amp on accident. Uh, at 1970, there were bass overdrive pedals. They had that option. And uh, they also had ways to mic up amps. So, I mean, I think there was something intentional about his tone here for sure. But uh, I think there was too, but I'm going to say it was the miking and like the way that he set that amp up. I'm going to believe he was a purist. (laughs) I think he was a genius. (laughs) Whatever helps you sleep at night, Mike. (laughs) I know, I know. I'm gonna go with it. Plus, like, listen, dude, John and Whistle died the most rock and roll lifestyle of all time. He died the night before the Hue was supposed to start off on a US tour in Vegas with a fucking stripper from heart failure. And what did they find in his system? A little bit of coke, you guys. Just a little actually bit? a fucking mountain of coke yeah. in his system. Come on, dude. Uh, side he was note, a baller till he died. Side note: there are a few, there are a few, there are a couple other baller deaths that we should mention just while we're on this topic of dying rock and roll life. <laughs> um, honorable mention to Biggie, who when he was uh, when he was murdered, he was found 
with in his pockets. The contents of his pockets were uh, an ounce of weed, a nine yeah. millimeter, yeah, and a package of Magnum condoms. <laughs> those are the busy. things that biggie had in his on his person when he was uh when he was killed but uh marvin gay is probably the most the badass most badass death of all he was shot by his own father with the gun that he bought him <laughs> which i think is kind of crazy that's uh, terrible dude it is terrible so but terrible. it is kind of it's kind of badass it's gangster as fuck yeah exactly gangster as fuck um okay so young man's blues four stars substitute two stars summertime blues three stars shaking all over four stars my generation five stars magic bus four stars i don't i don't even know what to tell you on it like i fucking loved every every one of the og original releases i loved and then when i went back and i listened to the entire concert um I'm not super familiar with Tommy, but I mean, it sounds like they fucking smashed it. This was a straight rock and roll show. It was. And that, it doesn't get any better. That's the thing about these guys. Is they are the who is straight up energy, raw rock and roll. Um, they do it well. They have, they put so much into it. And yeah, the original release was fantastic. My generation, 15 minutes. I mean, the original version of that song is like three minutes long, you know? So whatever and they that did thing here, went. Like full type two, like super Did fucking weird. So I was totally off the rails. I was trying to figure that out. Like a, a lot of it was definitely composed, right? Like there were several things that they were very clearly doing together at certain times. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I know what you mean. I could point out I some sections. I wouldn't use the word. I wouldn't use the word composed for it. I would use the word rehearsed because I do think that that was a fairly rehearsed jam, meaning territory that they found themselves in often, right? Territory and for so sure, it, but like I would argue that not like I think that most of it, yeah, rehearsed is, is, is a good description, but there are some parts of that where they came together that were undoubtedly to me like they they had they were very specific like the guitar and the bass came together on a on a on a line that there's no way it was just a serendipitous moment like it was a very specific line that was like several several notes in a row that that there's no way that it was just on accident you know um, I agree yeah I agree but there were also plenty of other like minutes where there was spaciness song. or jamming yeah totally. Yeah, where there's no fucking way that that was predetermined. You know, like it was a legitimate jam, but instead of circling around in a, instead of circling around like in a roundabout or a serendipitous way, like what, what you would expect out of a jam band, like they were coming back to like well-worn tropes. And I think that's what you're saying, JB. Yeah. Um, what'd you think, Justin? Um, so I guess I, I listened to the whole thing then I, I, Mike told me that I should, I could just listen to the six song one, but I, I guess I didn't find that I, I listened to the whole album. So I started, thought it started off a bit slow with, uh, heaven and hell. Um, so not that I didn't like it. It was just like a bit underwhelming for like, you know, what you expect the who to be. And I think you guys are absolutely right. Like they are just a, you know, powerhouse, um, 
straightforward rock. It was band. empty. <laughs> um, <but laughs> I think they got into it, uh, and you know, I, I did enjoy it. And when I realized I was enjoying it as much as I did was when, you know, I just kept thinking to myself, like, man, like, what would it be like to be there in 1970? Be nice. Jesus Christ. You know, yeah. like, so I, I put myself there, um, you know, as much as I could. And I, I think that I, I enjoyed it quite a bit because of that, because they made you feel like you wanted to be there while they were playing this live. Amen, brother. Yeah. I like that. Absolutely. Um, and that was a thought that I had a lot throughout it, listening to it too, was just, just the crowd. I mean, the energy was palpable, like on the record, especially there were, there was on magic bus, like you could hear the crowd kind of clapping along at the beginning, which was super fun. Fuck yeah, dude. Going crazy. Yeah. Um, I don't know how big the crowd was. It didn't sound like it was massive. It sounded like it was maybe a couple thousand. It didn't sound like it was much more than that though. 2,226. Is that it, right? Okay. No, I oh, I thought you were serious. <laughs> That'd be a Justin thing Dude, in to, the first to know part, that number. In the first part of that show, though, it was crazy because when they were doing, like, the banter in between songs, you could very clearly pick out, like, two or three fucking hecklers out in that crowd that were just like, oh, yeah, Roger, go ahead and play it straight, man. <laughs> you know? It's crazy. I'll throw this in there also. So we, we had a pretty wild hailstorm the other day. Um, and I was in the labs at work and I guess it's like greenhousey. So I, it started like hailing like a lot. Yeah. And, and like while I was listening to this album, so like for a second, I didn't really realize like what was going on. You thought that was Keith Moon. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so I went back and re-listened to some of it. But yeah, like it was, I don't know. Pretty yeah, by the way, Mike, we had a terrible hailstorm. Hail I should go check on your house. Make sure it's okay. Um Holden um Holden's been home and Holden actually cracked his windshield because he was driving back from Ankeny Ooh, in that no. hailstorm. That sucks. Yeah, and fucking blew up his windshield, but no, I think everything's okay at the house, but thank you. Good. Yeah. Um okay, so our first two entry and um our first I'm not going to lie. This, this fucking sets the table like really high for me for the rest of the who that we get. So we've got a couple more comments from, from Mr. Lee Stamper, and uh, I want to read them because he says, why make an exception for this for this album? How many live albums are even on this list? Um, we've had one, just to be clearly up till now. We've had one. What was the name of that band again, Mike? Do you remember? Are you thinking about Sex Machine? No, no. So we've had more than one Sex Machine, the the band that we we had a couple. Sex Machine was like a weird halfway between where it was kind of a live album, but it wasn't necessarily. I'm gonna find out. It was it was it was not even that long ago. But uh, and the whole album was live, and it was like that kind of socially conscious band from the '60s. Oh fuck the MC5. MC5, MC5 is what yep. you're thinking of. Yep, kick out the jams. MC5. That was a yeah, live album. Kick out the jams. Yeah, that's true. That was a live album. Boy, that was some hot shit. I mean, relative to like I think about like what the MC5 sounded like live versus what the Who sound like live. And it's like, oh, well, the Who is like an actual band. Yeah. And the MC5 were just assholes that played at protests. Yeah, kind of. 
But uh, he said, why make an exception? And then he said, there are way better live albums that got snubbed, and The Who is already all over this list. No reason for this one to be included. And then side note, he said, also, he's watching the UFC. He said, also, this fighter just chugged another beer out of a random fan's shoe. Fun idea for you. <laughs> Fun idea for you guys to do on the podcast. So um, that's why I read that comment because, yeah, we're going to consider that. Probably yeah, not do will. that. but uh, um, <laughs> That's interesting uh, what he's saying about just like live bands and like live albums in general and why the fuck are we appearing here. I don't know, dude. Uh, um, I actually, I want to see... I want to see more live albums on this list and I don't want to see this one go anywhere. Yeah. Like this is fucking like in so many ways, this was life changing for me, dude. I had no fucking clue that John Entwistle was doing this type of shit with the who. Like, I feel like a fucking moron. And then side note, um, with that John Entwistle quote, and I'm going to send you a link to this, to this video, Mike. Um, I would play it on the podcast if we could. But unfortunately, we would get taken off. But I'm going to send you a link right yeah. now, Mike. And those listening should look it up. But it's this: the Who won't get fooled again. John and John and Whistles isolated bass live. So it's just it's just an ISO oh, track God, for his bass. And I think I just sent you a link. So so check it out. And anybody that's listening that is interested in this, look that up because it is really something special. He starts off really really slow, and he just fucking goes off. And it is it is nice. nuts. So, he yeah he's he's a hell of a player. What are you gonna do with this? Do you want to move it up? Do you want to move it down? Do you like it where it's at? Where are you at? I like it where it's at, and I'm kind of on the same page with you. I wouldn't be opposed to seeing more live releases. Like I don't want to just see like random live recordings, but albums that bands put out as live. Uh, I mean as productions but they were they happen to be live like for example like europe 72 something of that i wouldn't mind seeing that on on here um that would almost that's make, criminal to th it's it's fucking crazy to think that europe 72 is not on this goddamn list it's almost like, like if you were gonna nuts. put any grateful dead you might as well not do uh working man's dead you might as well not do american beauty you might as well just fucking do europe 72 because that's a much better picture of what the dead did in their career thank you that's like if you honestly i would replace if you wanted to say well but the grateful dead should have more than one okay then fuck you live um live dead and then europe 72 yeah and you would have like you would have a really amazing picture of the dead from basically inception through call it like the late 70s early 80s type of phase yeah you know definitely so whatever but yeah i'm cool with it on the list and uh i think it's in a good position and i like the who personally they're not like my favorite band but i wasn't bummed out to listen to this at all so i'm cool what do you think justin roger listen roger daltrey also on this record god damn dude like daltrey did some crazy crazy shit during the show that yeah, dude he did was well. super talented yeah good singer for sure yeah um, I do want to read Rex before we jump into the last album of the night, which is going to be the most exciting for Lee Stamper. Um, Rex said about Live at Leeds from The Who, this is a beautiful snapshot of the classic sound of The Who. 
the vocals, the, bomb, the bombastic guitar tracks of Pete Townsend send this album into the stratosphere. This is the one thing about this record that stands out above everything else. This is a definite vinyl purchase for the collector's great spot for the album. So Rex dug it. Um, and listen, I dug it too. And I, I love that Rex was pointing out Pete Townsend, but in all honesty, fuck Pete Townsend and JV is off taking a piss or something. So he doesn't even get to refute the fact that I get to say John Entwistle is the fucking total stud MVP of the who over Pete Townsend. And I know that you agree with me, Justin. <laughs> I did like the bass after we talked about that. Uh, that's sort of what I paid attention to. Um, Dude, I'm, I'm telling you, if you go back and listen to that album again, now that like, now that I've made such a big boner about it, if you go back and listen to that album again, you're going to have a really fucking hard time not paying attention to what he's doing on the bass. Right. Cause it reminded me so much of Phil Lesh. In all honesty, like it's like a more um, aggressive. It's like <laughs> it's like a more aggressive but more mainstream version of a bass that will occasionally carry a melody. Okay, yeah. and that's the key, right? Like the fact that like Lesh would kind of drive the melody sometimes with his bass, and that's what Entwistle was doing to me a lot on this recording. It was special, man super super special i enjoyed it I, I, had, I had trouble placing it though too um based kind of like what lee's saying you know like where like had it i felt different because it is a live one and then like now what you guys are saying too about the europe 72 and all of that like yeah i i don't mind where it's at um but yeah i, I think it's just like it's a little bit different because it is a live one and there's that connotation of you know should it be a studio or you know that whole thing is that implication of what does this say about other live albums you know right yeah just kind of right and i agree with the europe 72 thing and you know did the dead get passed over on that but why didn't who and yeah so yeah I, it's I, a weird one yeah i like it on here um and it's great i'll probably will revisit it all right. Well, um, before we and and we have a couple of extra things that we're going to talk about tonight uh, because we are approaching the close of a span of 25. And the last album that we're going to talk about in this section of 25 is number 326, 1980 Prince's album Dirty Mind. Rolling Stone says a mix of slinky funk, synth driven rock, jittery pop and sexual innuendo. A little bit. Dirty Mind was Prince's first great album, even if it only hinted at where he was headed. White, black, Puerto Rican, just everybody just a freaking he sang on Uptown, a utopian ode to the Minneapolis club scene. The album includes the world's merriest do me wrong song, When You Were Mine, and the incest ditty sister. I wasn't being deliberately provocative, Prince said. I was being deliberately me. Aww. Prince is fucking sick. Apparently, he's into tracking down brides on ways to their weddings to give them fellatio, or he's trying to fend off his sister that's twice his age. That's who he is. <laughs> <clears throat> this might be the filthiest fucking album since Luke Skywalker, son. <laughs> Okay, I love it. I'm going to say it. I fucking love it. <laughs> Sorry, Lee Stamper. Uh, I mean, I pretty much love everything Prince does. I'm I'm a bit of a Prince fanboy. 
I, I'm a, I'm not ashamed at all to say that. I don't think that you should be ashamed at all to say that. I mean, I um, I enjoy Prince a lot. I don't think that I would call myself a fanboy necessarily, but I enjoy the fuck out of Prince. And this is kind of everything that I want Prince to do, to be perfectly honest with you. Oh, yeah. Um, and our friend Lee, again, of OnlyLee.com, he's talked a couple times throughout the week about shitty drum machines and yeah, i have that quote up here actually right say <laughs> so it I, read I, it i had said earlier this week that i was procrast or today that i was procrastinating and lee's response to me was here i'll summarize it for you shitty drum machines boring beats okay guitar sex words saved you the time <laughs> saved you the time. <laughs> <laughs> i got quite a kick out of see, it. see i love the drum <laughs> i think the, the First of all, it's not all drum machines, I don't think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there's some actual kit on this record. But the drum machine uh, songs, honestly, they work, I think. And also, I have an argument against that. Like, you, you got to consider the time. This was the 80s. Like, everybody was doing it. You know, he's just using the tools of the time. Like, it's not like this is a uniquely Prince thing. This is, uh, he's kind of doing... He's kind of going the way the wind's blowing at the time, and and he's doing his own take on it. I think that a lot of bands that you know from the '80s, or a lot of artists rather, were doing the drum machine thing, and maybe Lee just doesn't like Prince, and then he's like kind of picking that out as a thing to criticize. Yes. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I guess to you know <laughs> save face for Lee or whatever, maybe not save face, but he also just completely admitted that he doesn't like '80s pop, <laughs> so. Yeah, no, he, I'm getting a, getting a whole live feed of his thoughts here. He says, pass, skip, yawn. Those were in three different messages. Not necessarily. Uh, and then he said, hashtag cancel Prince. Um, he said, think of the children. He said, the 80s sucks, and Prince is part of why it sucks. You don't get a pass for ruining music. <laughs> so. JB, will you just will you just please tell him that he's only supposed to be letting us know what's happening in the USC fights and that he can keep all of his Prince commentary to his own fucking self? Yeah, I'll let him know. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Um, this album is... It, I mean, it might be the, the most fucked up Ludus thing that I've ever listened to in my life. Specifically, sister man, like a lot of this, I didn't even think was. I mean, it was, it was dirty, it was risque, but I mean, like, head is a song about fucking getting and giving head, like, not that really outlandish. I mean, to me, I mean, uh, I don't think so. Like, like it's just a, a human. JB, wait a minute, time out, time out, time out. Except for the fact that he's, I get it because you know he's like. This a was costume. a major record label in the 1980s that literally released a song that was about fucking blowing loads on wedding dresses. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when you put it that way, Mike. <laughs> uh, but anyways, but the problem is, is like, is that's like that's like one line from the song. We're like, oh shit, did he really just talk about that? And they're like, yep. And then they're like, go ahead and punch that track back a couple, though, because then he's talking about his sister, who's 32, who's fucking him. The only person she's ever fucked is him. Is him. And, and then uh, she like, doesn't wear what? She doesn't wear underwear because it gets in the way of the juice. <laughs> <laughs> that is the line in, in his song. I didn't just make that up <laughs> just for the <laughs> listeners out there. <laughs> 
dude. So Sister for me was like the, the crazy. crazy song. Like, I feel like a lot of this kind of stuff I've heard in other songs, but I mean, he's straight up admitting to fucking his own sister in this song. <laughs> or wanting to, you know, I, I, dude, I don't even, it's crazy. Um, content wise, musically, it's, it's good. Dude, it's kind of pop genius. Like it's kind it's of super like, pop genius. Yeah, yeah. Because just in terms of like, what do you want to hear, and what would you like to hear if all you wanted to do was dance and have a good time? It would be this. It would be this, right? It's super funky. It it honestly, all of it feels so good, especially the the funk jams. Like when you were mine. I like it a lot, but it's not really like it's, it doesn't like it's more synth pop, like that kind of eighties synth pop kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, good, good yep. pop song, not necessarily like a dance party kind of song, but his songs like, uh, do it all night. Um, yep. uptown head party up. Those are four just fucking straight up jams. You know what I mean? I loved, um, got a broken heart again. <laughs> Like, I mean, I fucking totally adored that song. Um, when You Were Mine is like, that's such a crazy fucking goofy fun song in terms of like lyrical content that granted it's not about fucking your sister, um, but it is like super funny and kind of catchy about how he loved her more when she was dating him type of things. Well, it's basically about him. He was dating a girl and then he decided to have a three-way with some other guy and then she went and dated that guy instead yeah yeah she went with the other dude and he was like that's all right he's like that's all right i still love you more when you were mine yeah (laughs) yep um but yeah that's good old good old 80s synth pop right there um broken heart again yeah that was a fun one that's kind of jazzy actually like probably the closest thing to a ballad on this one yeah um yeah still he managed to fit some kind of risque sexual lyrics into that song um absolutely head honestly was probably my top song along with uptown those were my two five stars um i gave head in uptown three stars my actually the only song that i put five stars next to was got a broken heart again really like i really did love that song yeah it was super simple but i don't know like prince has prince has this weird way of being um I don't know. Simple yet so powerful. I think about nothing compares to you, the Sinead O'Connor song, which if you think about it from like a lyrical and a compositional standpoint, like it's a really, really just a, a incredibly simple song, but it's so powerful. Well, it's a Prince song that and, she covered, right? Or, or was it the episode? Yeah. No, that was a Prince song. So Prince wrote it, um, but Sinead covered it on, um, well, there was a, it was it was an album we already listened yeah, to. Yeah, it was on the list. Yep. Yeah, it was on the list earlier. Um, yeah, I just I loved the groove on head. It felt so good. The bass line was amazing. Um the the female vocal lines on that were just some of my favorite parts. It just uh, <laughs> I forget her name. It was the keyboard player in his band, actually, that, that was doing those female Yeah, it was like Lisa Coleman or something like yep, that. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, you know who that sounded like to me? No, like the, the way she sung those lines, just like Billie Eilish, 
honestly. <laughs> it sounded exactly like that. Listen back and think Billie Eilish. You will you will be like, it, it sounds exactly like Billie Eilish. Nice. Nice indeed. Um, listen, it's our first Prince entry, right? And it's fascinating because I had never listened to this album before. And... Man, the thing the thing that stood out to me more than anything is just like how unbelievably fucking filthy this album is. I mean, this album is fucking filthy just in terms of like sexual content, sexual innuendo, like And this is a huge I, album I mean, influence-wise because this like really opened the door for this kind of level of sexuality in this type of music. Like it really wasn't Prevalent. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. And the boundaries that he was pushing too, right? Because there's that one song where he's like, hey man, are you a fag? Like, what are you? And he's like, I mean, I don't know. Like, whatever. <laughs> you know, he's basically and like, that's another thing. I don't know. I mean, if if you're into it, then yes. And if you're not, then no. <laughs> and he really, he wasn't though. He wasn't even gay. He was, he was straight. I don't even think he was bisexual. Wasn't he just straight? No, I don't think. Yeah, no, I think he was just heterosexual his whole life, too. Yeah, um, and, and I was reading about how much like attention in the 80s this album drew to, just to the idea of gaydar. Because, you know, yes. like there's that whole idea of gaydar. People think they can tell people are gay. Like, any like yeah. logical person is going to probably think maybe Prince is gay. You know what I mean? Um, I mean, for God's sakes, on the cover of his album, he's wearing a fucking G-string. You know, uh, and he's wearing like a vest and a G string and that's not, he's not fucking gay. He just, uh, I mean, not that I would have any problem with it if he was, but he's not, he's just like, like overtly sexual in a really flamboyant way. And, and he's not, yeah, he's not gay. He's just, that's what he is. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's not gay. He's Prince bro. Yeah. He's Prince. <laughs> <laughs> What do you want to do with this album? What do you want to do with it? Do you like it where it's at? Do you want to move it up? Do you want to move it down? Leave it do 100%. Think? It's not moving down for me. Not even one spot. I like it too. Yeah. I like it too. I like it in the spot. If if I didn't encounter this until 275, I wouldn't be pissed. Um, How much more Prince than we get? I mean, obviously, we get uh, the Purple Rain album, which is a live album. Is it? At least the I don't think the whole no, album. It's not. I don't think the whole album is, but no, Purple it's... Rain itself is a live track. Okay, Purple Rain itself might be a live track, but the rest of the album isn't live. We're no, gonna yeah. get Purple Rain. We're gonna get um, nineteen ninety nine. Right? Wasn't that the album? What the fuck else do we get from Prince? Yeah, as soon as I said that, I remembered. So it's not a live album, but. There's no studio version of Purple Rain, the song. Like, like they're the only. It's live. The only one that that is on the record is live. Okay, here is oh, my wow. best guess without knowing jack or shit. I do think we get Sign of the Times from 1987. I do think we get Purple Rain, and I do think we get 1999. That's my guess. Purple Rain, Prince and the Revolution is definitely on there. It's probably top hundred. Don't don't say it, but don't, don't give us any spoilers, Justin. Uh, uh, do you want to know? That's got Let's Go Crazy on it. 
Uh, fucking Purple Rain is so good, bro. Purple Rain so is amazing. Bad. It's gonna be top hundred, right? Yeah. Fuck. You it's got Windows Cry it. on it. Fuck yeah, you. dude. Yeah, that's no, no. yeah, that's top one hundred. It's top for sure. It's top hundred. It's probably top fifty. No, let's not get crazy. It's Sign probably, of the Times, though, dude. Sign of the Times is nothing to fuck with. It's probably top five, bro. Wrong. It's a double album, too. It's probably number one. That's also wrong. That's <laughs> <laughs> probably number one. All right, can I read Rex? Yeah. Or yep. are you reading Rex? Uh, I can read Rex. I have it pulled Go up here. It. So Rex on Dirty Mind. Ah, yes, early Prince. It has signature sound that we all love. It's funky, lively, fun, and sexy, sexy, sexy. Really like this album. It's easy to listen to and find your head bobbing to that funkalicious beat. It's easy to fall in love with this album and rediscover Prince's music all over again. Rumor is that Prince has recorded over 50 to 100 albums in his lifetime and only released the albums he wanted the public to hear. So that sounds they, like some crazy fucking conspiracy theory shit. No, actually, I think he's right. Like I, I remember reading about this. Huge, there's this huge vault of Prince music, and they've actually released a couple albums. I think posthumously, um, of of that stuff. I I don't know if it's fifty to a hundred, but there's definitely a lot of Prince music that uh, we haven't heard. So rumor has it That'd that Prince has recorded over 50, 50 to a hundred albums in his lifetime only released the albums he wanted the public to hear. So if they ever decide to release those albums, fuck this list. We have to do a Prince list. So Rex, Rex's team Prince. So just more fuel for the fire of the Lee Rex putting kitty pool throwdown. <laughs> so, <laughs> So we can't wait oh, for that. Oh, the fucking pudding match just got way fucking hotter, son. Way fucking hot. We're going to play this album when it happens, too. We're going to play Prince. <laughs> oh, Lee yeah, while dude. Rex, uh, Sister fucks and you head up in the on pool. repeat. Honestly, like, we got to start deciding who we're going to, like, we got to make bets on this. Lee no, versus let's Rex. Not make, no, let's not make bets. Let's just start selling tickets. Like all tickets are only MVP, VIP fucking tickets. It's gonna, dude. It's gonna be a tight house. It's gonna be really, really tight. It is gonna be packed. And I'm taking bets for whoever's <laughs> out there that wants bets. Hit me up. <laughs> oh God! All right. So should we um, should we preview next week? Good sir. Let's do it. Yes. All right, so next week, the five albums that we're going to be going over, and I think we're reverting back to, no, I don't think. We are reverting back to our normal Friday next week. So next week, we're going to be back on on Friday, um, 8, 9 o'clock, something like that. At 325, we're going to be talking about the anthology released in 1993 from Rhino Records of Jerry Lee Lewis, All Killer, No Filler. 324 is Coldplay, A Rush of Blood to the Head. Number 323, the triple album from The Clash, Sandinista from 1980. 322 is yet another Elvis Presley album from Elvis and Memphis. Oh, hunga, 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 hunga. And number 321 from Lana Del Rey, Norman fucking Rockwell from 2019. 
Yep, and side note, we will have another guest next week. We will have Mr. Riley Rath returning next week. He very specifically wanted to join for The Clash's Sandinista, so he'll be back next time. Hot damn. Okay, so we are at the end of a break of 25. Yes, sir. So, JB, what do you like, dude? Out of the last 25, like, what's your number one? What's your biggest standout? over the course of the last 25 records that we've gone through. I'm making that decision right this second. Give me one second. Um, That's okay. I put you on the spot and I'm actually kind of doing the same thing. Like I'm just flipping back through and yeah, I'm just kind of like doing a quick inventory about what I think is the, I don't know. I mean, I guess what I'm going to end up going with is the most important record that we've talked about in the last 25. Um, so you can talk about let it be. And I might, I might give you an addendum too. And just like, I might, I might give you a couple of different thoughts. Cause we have had some really fucking killer, killer good shit in the last 25. I think the obvious, the obvious one is let it be, but I'm going to not pick that just because of the fact that I do like, let it be naked that much more. And just because that's the obvious, I mean, um, so, I mean, obviously, Let It Be, I love. So, I'm going to pick something else yeah. just to kind of pick another standout for me. And can I – I'm going to give two that it's between, and then I'm going to pick one after I've said it out loud because it's going to become more clear to me after I say it out loud. So, okay. honestly, uh, Liquid Swords by Jizza was one of my Ooh. very favorite ones. And then second most, or maybe first most, is Still Bill by Bill Withers. Wow. So, love that Jesus, one. Son. And honestly, I'm doing it. I'm going with Bill Withers. That's wow. it for me. Still Bill. Amazing. Okay. So for me, like I approached this as a, I guess like the most important album of the last 25 that we've done that I think has just been face fucked worse than anything else is a Braxis. Like okay. a Braxis yeah. out of the last 25 albums that we've done is hands down the greatest of the last 25 that we've done. And that's not even close, not even close, not even remotely debatable. Um, I do think that um, it's worth noting to talk about, let it be only because fuck, let it be, let it be. Shouldn't be on this list. It should be, let it be naked. And that album should be hundreds of albums higher than where it is right now. Um, But yeah, dude, it was a good 25, man. It was a it was solid a really 25. 25. It was hard picks. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're out there and you're looking for something to listen to, check out. I mean, you probably know Santana. I don't know. I mean, how many people really know Santana Braxis like intimately these days? Probably not that many. So get Fucking out there. Fucking dig in. L- dig into that. Dig into if you're into hip hop, listen to Liquid Swords. Or if you're open mm-hmm. to if, even if you're open to hip hop, even if you're not into it, but you're open to it. Hip hop adjacent. Out, yeah. Yeah, if you're hip hop curious, check out Liquid Swords by Jizza, um, and then for everybody, I recommend Still Bill by Bill Withers. That's a fantastic Absolutely. record. So I so can, good. I can get behind Kill Bill a hundred percent. So, um, with that being said, <laughs> back to our normal daily routine or weekly routine uh, next Friday. And uh, if you want to send us a message, you can go to anchor.fm forward slash this sucks and you can leave us a voicemail or you can send us an email to this sucks at gmail.com. 
And thanks for listening. Thanks again, guys. And Justin, any final thoughts before we, we sign you off? Thanks again for joining us tonight. We really do appreciate it. No, thanks yeah, for having buddy. me. I guess, um, yeah, this list sucks. It does. And, you know, Justin will be back. <laughs> we guarantee it. Justin will be back several times throughout the throughout the course of this podcast. So you'll hear from him again. And you'll hear from us again next week. So we'll see you then. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. This list sucks, this list sucks, this list sucks, this list sucks, it sucks. It sure does.